and welcome to the RCP Medical Podcast. It's the 29th of April, 2020, and we are currently in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic that is affecting the whole of the world at the moment. We are recording this from our individual homes, so there may be some background noise that you wouldn't normally hear, and there may be some interruptions. However, we're going to try our best to get a good podcast out to you today. Now, we've been thinking a lot about what we should be covering in these upcoming COVID series of podcasts, and we've decided that we're going to start the first one on decision-making. This is something that I'm sure we've all done over the last few weeks, and we've probably found it very difficult in some situations. I'd like to give a big shout out to all of the incredible NHS staff, all of the amazing emergency service workers, and also all of the care workers in care homes and key workers, basically helping keep Great Britain functioning as it is at the moment. So thank you to everybody out there. I want to welcome today, Dr. Chris Basford. Hello. Um, so I'm on the pod- podcast. Amy's um, invited me in today um, because I have uh, some experience and research in decision-making around admission to intensive care units and escalation of um, treatment. Um, I did some research based at the University of Warwick on that. And I was also involved in the um, development of some of the resources to support the nice rapid guidelines about um, escalation of treatment and decision making during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but more than that, I'm an intensive care consultant and a physician um, working and making these decisions about admission to intensive care at the moment. Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. So um, I'm going to start with a case. The focus on this case is going to be different to our usual podcasts, is that we're going to really look at the escalation of treatment decision into intensive care. So the case I want to talk about today is a real case. So over the last four to five weeks, I've been working as an acute physician. I've seen huge numbers of individuals with COVID-19 of a variety of different ages. And this case in particular really does stand out in my mind. This is a 74-year-old female who presented to the emergency department on a Sunday. And it was the first weekend that I was really working um, in the COVID pandemic. So it was around four to five weeks ago. Quite a busy day, actually. Busier than I think we'd expected. And I was working as the acute physician in ED. So this lady came in, 74-year-old, and she had a background of rheumatoid arthritis for which she took methotrexate subcutaneously. She was also on a low dose of prednisolone daily, five milligrams. And aside from that, she had the usual high blood pressure medications, which she was taking an ACE inhibitor for. When she came into the department, she was alone. She was brought in by the ambulance. And when I took a history from her, donned in my PPE, my mask, my visor and my gown, which was the first time properly I think I'd wore it that weekend. It was noticeably very hot and very different to practising in sort of non-COVID era. She began to feel unwell around a week ago. She lived with a daughter who was a teacher. She'd had a cough, non-productive. She'd had a fever, a reduced appetite and some night sweats. On further questioning, 
she'd had a couple of episodes of diarrhoea three days before she'd come to hospital. That had now settled. She wasn't normally short of breath. She had no lung disease that she knew about and none that was associated with the rheumatoid arthritis. She was short of breath on exertion and the last couple of days she was very short of breath at rest. The cough was getting worse and she was now finding it very difficult to sleep at night. She had a huge element of anxiety because of a knowledge from the the news and the you know what had been happening on social media about COVID-19. She was concerned about her age and that she was only at risk group and also she was living with a daughter who'd been exposed to huge numbers of people she on examination when I saw her she didn't look very unwell um she was sitting up she was chatting however her observation showed a respiratory rate of 32 her blood pressure was 140 over 70 her temperature was 38.9 her Respiratory rate, as I said, sorry, was 32. Um, Her heart rate was around 100 and it was regular. Now, on auscultation of her chest, I heard widespread crackles throughout the whole of the lungs. Heart sounds were normal. Abdomen was soft and non-tender. An examination of the ankles, there was no pitting edema and her calves were soft and non-tender. Now, the key thing that I was concerned about is when I looked at her oxygen saturations, she was on 15 litres of oxygen via a non-rebreathe mask and her oxygen saturations at this point were 92%. So I was worried. I was scared that this was obviously going to be a COVID patient. And it was very at the early stages of the pandemic. So I have to say I wasn't that used to seeing patients with COVID. So we did some blood tests which showed a normal haemoglobin, a lymphocyte count low at 0.6, and the normal is one and above. She had a platelet count of 110, which was also low, but a white cell count and neutrophil count were normal. Her CRP was very elevated at 284. Her kidney function was normal. Her liver function showed a slightly elevated AST, but aside from that, nothing else of note. Chest x-ray showed bilateral infiltrates and her arterial blood gas, which was done on 15 litres of oxygen at the time, showed a pH of 7.32, a PO2 of 8 kPa and a PCO2 of 5.9. I came out of the room and basically took my PPA off, washed my hands about 70 times and then thought to myself, what the hell am I going to do? Because I genuinely, I felt this was the sickest individual I'd seen so far with COVID-19. We were all new to this and I was worried. Chris, any suggestions? <laughs> the, the, the things that stand out to me are that A, you're on 15 litres per minute by a non-rebreathe uh, mask. Um, so that's as much oxygen as you can realistically give pretty much on a ward. Mm-hmm. And with that, she's got a PO2, which is borderline acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and a respiratory rate of 32. And this is, either this gets better um, very quickly um, and um, that's improve on what you're doing just because you've got the first oxygen on, or this is someone who's going to need some help. Um, now, so from a physiological point of view, a decision needs to be made for this lady on what we're going to do. It may be, and again, this is where um, when you're just having that sort of handover, um, which you've given, I mean, that's as, as good a handover as, as, as an intensivist is likely to get. This is where you're going to, um, uh, you're going to need to probably get a little bit more and go and see the patient to try and get a better feel for what's going on. Because as I say, a decision needs to be made on for this lady, because otherwise a decision is going to be made for you by her physiology. Yes, and that's exactly what my concern was. Now, what was interesting and what I've seen subsequently with a lot of COVID patients is that oxygen saturations began to drop very quickly. So our oxygen demand increased over the course of one to two hours, more than Mm. I would have thought. So that was when I thought, okay, maybe I need to get ITU involved. Yeah, I think that's entirely reasonable. The the other thing is even if... um, this lady doesn't need ITU now. It's it's quite likely that she's going to need it relatively, um, relatively soon. Um, and either you're you're going to need to get her admitted, or at the very least, you're going to need to get some some help and ongoing monitoring of her. So, um, a lot of hospitals have had to cancel their outreach services um, and sort of draw a lot of nursing back into into their critical care numbers. Um, but if you have got an outreach service, then then this is the sort of person that if you're not admitting straight away, you'd certainly want them to be assessing. Yeah, absolutely. The concern that... So I, I went away and I discussed this case with quite far too many people, probably, because I just... <laughs> I was a little bit, obviously, worried. I was anxious that I was going to make the right decision. And the things that was brought up quite frequently was, well, she's got rheumatoid, so she's immunosuppressed. And therefore, she would be more susceptible to covid I mean, again, we're not entirely sure whether that's the case, to be honest, even at the moment. There's still, I'm sure, a lot of research to be done. She was on prednisolone. She was hypertensive. She also had a very high BMI. And she had, on further questioning, some symptoms suggestive of obstructive sleep apnea. She wasn't treated for it. She hasn't been investigated for it. And I didn't know whether I should read too much into that or not but she didn't sleep very well. She snored a lot, um, and which her family actually corroborated when I had a chat to them. Um, and she often woke up in the night feeling very unrefreshed and very tired all the time. So her BMI was 42. The first thing I did after seeing her and panicking about the oxygen at this early stage of COVID was I spoke to the intensive care consultant, and I said I'd really like an opinion on this individual. So I'll, if I were to put myself in the shoes of the intensivist on call there, so um, um, I'm going to want to um, find out a little bit more about this lady and, and if possible, see her myself. Now, that may not be um, uh, as easy as it sounds, especially when you're having to, to don a lot of PPE to go and see it. And certainly one doesn't want to be wasting PPE to be going to um, see patients when you don't have to. But also you need to make sure that you're getting the right decisions for, for each patient. And sometimes there's no substitute for actually going to, to see them. So 
yes, we, I think we've we've established even from that early physiology that there is going to be a need for potential um, for potential organ support, um, and that may be something that maybe relatively straightforward. It may be that there you you can some other high flow or some CPAP, and it may be that there are hospitals or, or um, ED departments that can provide that outside of a critical care um, setting. Certainly in a hospital that um, we work at, um, they would need to be admitted to ITU for, for CPAP. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're going to have to need to make that call. Now, um, we did a lot of research looking at um, how people make the decision about um, admission to intensive care an escalation of treatment, but we also um, developed a decision support tool, a, um, which we then implemented in a few trusts and tried to learn from that. And, and the output from that was um, what's now termed, well, we've termed the Warwick model for decision making. And it's a way of thinking about the decision and structuring your decision making um, for for this. And it's um, part, it's part of the um, resources that are supporting the nice guidance on escalation of treatment and it's probably recognizable to most people as what they think is best practice um, and so perhaps if I just use that as an approach um, for this lady and it's um, hopefully will seem fairly intuitive mm-hmm. so the first thing one you'd need to look at is well is there a role for intensive care is there something that we could potentially do with organ support that they would need to come to an intensive care unit for um, and as I say, this lady would appear to um, that is barely acceptable on maximum ward-based treatment. Um, they're going to need a decision-making um, whether or not they're coming to ITU because you could put them on CPAP, you could put her on um, intubate, ventilate, and that sort of escalation if that was felt to be the right thing for her. The second um, part of that, apart from, well, is there a role for ITU, is would intensive care potentially work and this is possibly where there's been a little bit of controversy with the um, the nice guidance and other resources that people have developed because well you've got to look at how um, whether intensive care treatments are going to work part of that is going to be um, looking at other aspects of that patient's um, health and their life um, which would include things like frailty um, and that's been a um, an issue for some of the nice um, guidance when its first iteration, um, and then finally, and as important as anything else, is whether the patient would want intensive care and the treatments that we would offer them, whether that's right for them, um, their values, their wishes, etc. Absolutely, and it's, I mean, so at, at any points in this decision making, do resources come into this? You'd be foolish to say that they don't you've got to base your decisions on what treatments are available to you so if i um um and that i think was some of the guidance that um the um the ficm and the intensive care society put forward their legal and ethical advisory group saying that you can only offer what you can offer but for when you're making a decision about what's best for a patient you make a you should be making a decision about what's best for a patient and then seeing if the resource is available and if they're not then how do you mitigate for that rather than saying this is what i've got available and then trying to fit my patients into that pathway rather than the other way around that's certainly how how i feel we should be approaching that i think one a key problem that we've had with covid19 is because it's a completely new emerging virus, we don't know of any specific treatment. 
We don't know of any prophylactic, prophylactic option for COVID-19 and therefore the treatment options may change. Uh, absolutely. Um, the supportive treatment is where most people have, have had their attention. Um, and speaking now on the 29th of April, um, we're um, hoping that we're past the peak of this and the, the, the direst sort of predictions have, have not come to pass so far, um, um, where we've had to um, properly ration the intensive care treatment. Um, and so the guidance um, from all of the professional bodies really is that the the best practice um, should be doing what we've always done, using the values that we've always had to make decisions in the right way. Um, and that is pretty much all, all as we've said above that. We should be um, uh, using our um, the frameworks that we're familiar with, the the practices that we're familiar with to make these make these decisions, and not rationing, which may not have ever been relevant. Now, I think quite a few of us would have been in situations um, where we've tried to get a patient into intensive care, and we've been told, "Oh, there's no beds," or "No, they're not fit for ITU." And from a clinician's perspective. It's very difficult sometimes for me to understand how the intensivist actually came to that decision. Um, and it'll be interesting to work through how you come to that decision that they're not for ITU. So the first thing I would say is that there is considerable variation in practice on this. Absolutely. Um, and and I, I don't think that would be a secret to anyone who's worked in internal medicine in the UK in um, in well since the nhs was founded um and sometimes you will have um doctors who are more hawkish in their outlook um for want of a better expression and sometimes you will get people who are um, more dovish and i think that in itself is one of the most difficult um things to to appreciate or to um uh, to face when you're a referring clinician is that you've got um You've got decisions which seem very arbitrary and can be based on things that you don't understand. And what I would say is that it is often very poorly rationalised and articulated in either notes or in feedback to the referring team. Mm. Um, so one of the things that is highlighted in the in the RCP document about this and um, elsewhere, the BMA as well, um, about decision making during COVID is that please document your decisions as well as you possibly can, um, including, if relevant, the resource um, issues that you're facing at that time. So there are certainly some trusts where resources have been much more strained than they have been um, elsewhere. And so, but if you're having to make difficult decisions and resources are a component in that, then that needs to be clearly documented so that people can um, appreciate the decisions as being made in those circumstances. But that also in a more a less pressured time is relevant as well. You need to have articulated your decision and communicated it back um, rather than what what often as physicians we used to face, which was you'd refer someone to ITU and the last thing, the next thing you knew was there would be a scribble in the note not for ITU and that would be it. One of the quotes we did as a part of the qualitative research we did around um, admissions um, was that um, a, um, a consultant physician um, described the calling card of the intensivist as asking um, how far a patient could walk and that would be the only thing that yeah. would be documented in the notes. And that, that may be relevant, you know, the, um, the fitness of a patient to face um, the rigours of 
um, intensive care and come out with a, an outcome that is acceptable after them will depend on their physiological fitness, which can be manifested in some circumstances as how far they can walk. But no one is ever going to um, uh, suggest that that should be the only criteria on which you're basing this sort of decision. Going back to uh, how I was describing this earlier, whether ITU is relevant, but whether it would work. And it's, it's not that difficult, I would suggest, but it does take a little bit of practice to articulate that as this particular patient has a very poor exercise tolerance and they are very frail and they um, therefore the outcome from prolonged intensive care um, will be this and therefore my decision is this. It's that sort of decision that will actually make communication with families a lot easier and may save your um, uh, save you some some time and effort in court if that decision is ever questioned. And I think um, what's what point you raise there is about um, first of all, it's very subjective sometimes assessing somebody's fitness. Mm. So, I mean, what I think somebody might be fit, somebody else might be like, oh god, that's not fit. I can run a marathon. So you often compare somebody's fitness to your own fitness um so it's a very subjective measure but also we talked about the um, frailty score as well and yes. as you said earlier there's been a huge amount of um sort of debate really around the frailty score and how it has been used how it was suggested to be used and how it's being used now um do you just want to talk a little bit about that and how your experience of it Sure. So, so one of the things that um, I've had to do recently in a different part of my job is set up a frailty service, um, and the the uh, because of the the wealth of frailty scores, each of which has a um, has its plus points and its negative points. And the the, the most common one used at the moment, the clinical um, frailty score, the Rockwood score, um, is is good, um, but you need to know how to use it, and it is a screening tool. Um, it is not the comprehensive geriatric assessments that um, one would um, think it is from some of the some of the ways that people are referring to it. It's also relevant that you need um, it's based on their their performance status two weeks before their mm-hmm. current admission, and that is important to note because often you'll find that inexperienced users of that that score will give you a frailty score for the time they walk in, yeah. and your your lady that you. Um, referred to us, and yes, you you you, you said at the start that she was um, very active and independent, mm. but at the time of her admission, she was clearly needing help with every aspect of her life, and would have wow. scored maybe a, um, a seven or eight because she was breathless at rest. Absolutely. Um, but her clinical frailty score two weeks before, so a week before she started showing the first symptoms of her um, COVID, mm. would would have been a um, certainly less than five, um, I would suggest three, but then I'm, I'm guessing not knowing enough about mm. her to do that. So um, frailty, not something to, that we should be um, using as anything other than a screening tool for this, I would suggest. Um, but also, if you're going to be basing any sort of decisions about escalation of treatments, you need to know why someone has scored it at that particular level. The data um, around frailty for admission to ITU have used a frailty um, score of less than five um, as non-frail, more than five for frail and above. Um, and they um, have suggested that, yes, that, that's significant. They get a relative risk um, of um, two for in-hospital mortality if they're classed as frail. 
So it certainly would be relevant. But again, those are um, more reliable um, uh, data where people have put the right sort of information in. They've been trained how to use the frailty score um, to get that sort of data out. I think that goes without saying a lot of the things that we are used, we, we shouldn't be dogged in sticking to it. And around that score of five, that's um, evidence slowing, I think, is how that's described in the in the nomogram there. So when um, helping higher order um, um, ADLs, so typically involves shopping, working outside the home, that sort of thing. Um, and you can see where that preparation, that um, the delineation between five and four. Well, if someone if someone cooks for you and does your shopping, well, that may just be that they're being helpful and not that you need to. And you ask that question, yeah. does someone does your shopping for you? You might get a different answer to, um, do you ever get out to the shops? Those are very different questions. Yeah, absolutely. It's really good to, to really think about that. What I would also suggest um, for the um, physicians who are referring these patients is, is make sure that you're giving that, if you've got that sort of detail. So when the intensivist is going to be asking you for your, your clinical frailty score, you know, well, it's five, but, um, and this is why it's five, or this is why. And um, uh, that sort of information will really help that, uh, the, the intensive care team make a decision that's right for that patient. What, what I also found quite um, insightful and, and useful to read was the um, RCP ethical guidance. And they talked specifically about ethical frameworks about patient care and escalation of care as well. Um, and lots of different areas, particularly in a pandemic. Now, we all know, I'm sure none of us have lived through a pandemic before, and we probably never will live through another one in the future. But they do present very difficult ethical challenges, logistical challenges, medical ones. And it's they what they really say is that we should be using fairness. And it's fairness how we should be approaching these ethical decisions. And they sort of utilize the values of accountability, inclusivity, transparency, reasonableness, and responsiveness. And I think it's really good to reflect on all of those five key values maybe in terms of our patients who, or our individual who are, you know, I want to refer to the intensive care unit. So could we just talk through those, Chris, and sort of recap about accountability and any other? Sure. So um, accountability, that all of those, um, uh, the, the, those domains, as it were, they're um, developed from the um, accountability for reasonableness, um, which is an ethical framework developed by um, a chap called Daniels. Um, who is looking at how to judge whether a um, decision to allocate resources in a particular way at a macro level, say, um, for example, do you put um, um, health funding into IVF? Do you put it into more hip operations? How do you make that sort of decision? Or how do you um, judge that decision to have been made fairly? And it's it's partly the procedural um, fairness of it. And it does uh, boil that down, really, to, to fairness. Um, and so what the framework is pretty much based on is, yes, it, you, you need to be accountable to the um, people that are making, uh, people that are affected by those decisions and including them in the decision-making process. 
Um, and that, that process has got to be really um, transparent. So people need to know why the decision has been um, uh, made or how it has been made, rather. Um, and it needs to have been based on criteria that are acknowledged to be relevant by those people, by the people that are included and affected by the decision-making process itself. Because only if you're getting that sort of level, even if people don't agree, at least they'll agree that the process has been correct and been right and we've made it in the right sort of way. And that does all boil down to boil down to being fair. Now, as I say, that that framework was developed for um, resource allocation at a, a much higher level rather than individual patients. And this is um, what's interesting about this situation is because we're making... Um, well, it would have been rationing decisions at a um, um, at a patient level, then using that for it, and and the same um, the same principles certainly do apply. Um, that you need to be fair, but you also need to be accountable. That you need to be transparent in your process and base your decisions on on factors that you can everyone would acknowledge were at least reasonable. I was just going to say, talk about the. The, you, you mentioned there that about involving people in the decision making, um, uh, and yeah. I guess that's where the inclusivity comes into it as well. Is that I know it's something that I'm sure we're all guilty of is actually not involving the patients when we should in all times, um, and sometimes actually just talking to the patient and asking what they want um, because you know do they want do they understand what intensive care is do they actually want to go to intensive care have they been before have they had a bad experience. And I think it's not just about sharing the decision-making with the individual, this, um, in my case, this lady, but her family, and also other medical practitioners and the whole team. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, certainly the, the shared decision-making process is, is the one that we should be using, which is certainly under-recognised um, within intensive care. We should be using a shared decision-making um um, process, um, but it doesn't happen that way. Um, the research that we did um, um, looked at this, and what was what was um, uh, strange was that um, intensive care, they um, uh, when they were assessing a patient, they would very rarely actually seek out a patient's view. Um, and I, I don't think that's unique to intensive care. I think that a lot of the referring teams would also not ask a patient what they want to describe what the outcomes of intensive care might look like and what what would happen in intensive care they'll they'll not do that they'll just the patient will be excluded from this decision making process but when that information is there it's described as gold dust to actually have what the patient's views are i think the the difficulty it's so hard to call a family at home and have that conversation particularly what i've noticed in the current pandemic is pe people are in hospital they don't have their family or their next of kin their friends or family around them so you have to make a horrible phone call to say your relative's really unwell um and have some of those discussions and also with the individual you know my lady in this case it's sometimes really difficult to bring up itu conversations and respect or you know resuscitation conversations um you know we're told you know you have to have this discussion and that is in a lot of the guidance that i've i've said 
but it is hard sometimes. Yes, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. These are this, these are not easy conversations, and they're even worse over the phone um, oh. when you don't have the non-verbal clues. And yes. um, um, so, so yes, and, and the only thing worse is probably being on the other end of that that conversation. My my, when I'm talking to people about decision making about this, um, one of the things that I, I do like to remind people is that this is this is a key a key skill that needs to be developed practiced taught mentored um because um it is is so valuable and this the the covid has been a great challenge for this in now having to learn the new skill of doing this over the phone it's very difficult and you like you say to be on the other end of that phone call as a family member or a friend it's unimaginable as to how difficult that must be and like you say, you lose the nonverbal cues. What I've noticed when I'm having difficult conversations with individuals in hospital, um, such as patients, because you're wearing a mask and goggles or a visor, you've also lost some of the nonverbal cues there as well because you can't see your mouth moving. So I find that really strange as well. And I found being empathic difficult without being able to use my facial expressions. Yeah, I agree entirely. And also, the F, if you're using an FFP3 mask, you've got to shout through them some of the time, and that does yeah. not really help with having a sensitive conversation when you're yeah. trying to shout through an FFP3 mask and not breathing through your nose. So, just go back to our lady then. Right. So, our 74-year-old, um, who was one of my first patients I saw with COVID-19 symptoms. I mean, obviously, I didn't know whether she had it or not then because we hadn't got the test results back, but it was highly likely. And also, obviously, because I had so many cognitive biases going on that weekend that everybody's going to come in with COVID, or assume she had COVID. Um, so, I did call ITU, and I got the... Uh, She's not for ITU response. Okay. Um, and that was really difficult because um, they hadn't seen the patient. So I'm not being, you know, negative or any criticism about anything. Um, it was just that that was the response I've got. And I think that was before a lot of these frameworks and a lot of this discussion had been had. So um, I, I, I just felt that wasn't right. And I, I couldn't explain why it wasn't right. I just felt it wasn't right. And, you know... The, the my lady had capacity mm. she knew what the problem was we talked about the outcomes um you know intensive care uh, you know what that could possibly provide what it may not provide uh, what the possible treatment options were um and she had a very active life and she couldn't get it into her head that this may not be the case so I spoke to ITU again and somebody did come down and review the, la the, um, the lady and um, the decision was made to take her to intensive care at that point. Um, her oxygen requirements had increased, her respiratory rate had increased and she was exhausted. And that's something else I've noticed as well in, in individuals with COVID is they respiratory rate is so high that they become very exhausted very quickly. And if you don't, if I didn't, hadn't have provided some more support for this lady's breathing, she would have died there and then, you know, you know, in, in the AD, because she was just exhausted. So the decision was made to take this individual to intensive care. Um, and I do feel that she was involved in that decision. Um, we discussed it prior to 
you know, we discussed her options. Um, and she was very clear that she wanted to live, um, which is understandable. Um, very difficult discussion with her family. Very difficult over the phone. It was really hard. Um, and it sticks with me, I think, because it was one of my first patients, actually. Um, so she did go to ITU. What I still don't understand, and I don't think I ever will, is how the decision was made initially not to take her over the phone. And I know that you're not going to be able to answer that question. No, no I'm not. I'm sorry. <laughs> no. And, no. And it may be that, uh, as a referring clinician, you, you, you never agree with the the <laughs> decision that's made. But uh, what I think is inexcusable is nobody articulating it to you and nobody being able to explain it. Um, and that, I I think, is something that we as intensivists should, should demand of ourselves, that we are able to articulate why we've come to a decision so that we can tell our colleagues, so that we can tell our patients and their families about why we're doing it. And, and you know, most of the time we do do that. Um, uh, but there are instances where it's not communicated and for whatever reason the question isn't asked and doesn't come, uh, doesn't come easily to the people that are then wondering why something was done in a certain way. Um, and it may be the decision was made in a perfectly reasonable way, just not Absolutely. articulated in the notes and not nobody bothered to speak to you. And that what what that's left you with, by the sound of it, is that that moral distress, that that feeling that you weren't able to do the right thing at yeah. at that time, mm. um, which is you know it's no way to look after your colleagues not to articulate that that sort of thing and to leave them with that sort of feeling at the end of the day. Yeah, I definitely felt like that, but I just felt like I wanted to do my best for this patient, and I couldn't because I didn't have the um, ability to. And I guess this is where the role of medical ethicists could potentially, you know, be involved. Um, I know some hospitals do have um, ethicists and bioethicists. And, you know, maybe on reflection, potentially we could have had a, um, a clinical ethics committee, particularly for situations like this in COVID. Yeah, now I'm a big fan of um, involving um, people who have, who've had some training and experience in making decisions from a, with an ethics hat on. Um, I think there are, there are numerous ways of doing it. Sometimes uh, having a just just someone on call, a senior physician, senior senior doctor, wherever, just to have another opinion of it. You should never be making this sort of decision on your own without discussing it. Now, it may just be that that's the intensivist and the referring physician just discussing amongst themselves. Mm -hmm. But if that's not working, then taking it wider. Um, I know there are hospitals which have set up these hot hot services um, where they'll have an ethics opinion any time of the day and uh, I really can see the value in that and others which um, have decided to go a different route and just have um, other senior clinicians that you can contact whenever um, but again you shouldn't be making these decisions on your own um, when there is a degree of uncertainty or, or anyone is unclear unhappy with the outcome yeah I think you go after a shift you go home and you really mull over that decision that you've made, particularly if you've made it in isolation or just, you know, maybe with the family um, and the individual mm. in hospital, um, which, I mean, I often ask many people, probably far too many people, because it's, you know, you sort of want to talk it over. And I think definitely having an ethicist would be incredible um, to yeah. be able to just work through 
some of the the thoughts. So to go back to um, my patient, um, the individual, the 74-year-old lady, she went to intensive care. She was there for two weeks. She received CPAP initially and then she was intubated and ventilated. However, after two weeks, sadly, died in the intensive care unit. And obviously very upsetting for everybody involved in the care and the family. And it's a case that we've obviously talked a lot about in this podcast, but this individual really sticks with me, maybe because it was my first weekend on call during the COVID pandemic. But it's, um, it was a very difficult um, situation at the time. Um, we will be on the uh, website, be putting on all of the references that we've talked about. We will be putting on links to the NICE learning, talking about the um, what the BMA have got out there and also um, highlighting the GMC Ethics Hub. Again, a lot of these do focus on transparency, documentation involving the patients and the family members. Thank you, Chris. For Not at all, Amy. Thank you. Um, I hope that everybody out there has found this um, a valuable podcast. Obviously, all of these decision-making processes can be used in the non-COVID individuals as well. So obviously, it's not just for individuals with COVID. And whether an individual has COVID or not shouldn't really affect how we make decisions anyway, although I'm sure it may have done over the last few weeks. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you want to get in touch, email at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or tweet me at Amy Burbridge. Thank you so much for listening during this difficult time. Thank you to everybody out there. Everybody take care and stay safe.